Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Being a first-generation college student is already tough. Then the pandemic hit, and this Brown University student wrestled with visiting her family. I always like struggle with feeling guilty about doing something that makes me happy, especially during this pandemic, because it is a danger. It is a public health hazard. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next, a story about navigating 2020 as an Ivy Leaguer and daughter of undocumented immigrants. Plus, in Boston, a student tests positive for COVID after arriving on campus and is quickly whisked away to an isolation dorm. It's been pretty, like, taxing on my mental health. All you can think about is, am I sick? Will I be sick? And actor Luis Guzman on Falling for Vermont in the 1970s. I was going to the quarry and swimming and everybody butt naked and stuff. Oh, hell yeah. You don't see that stuff in the city, so... You could kind of discover a new sense of freedom. It's Next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. Many schools in New England have started again, whether it's remote, fully in person, or a combination of the two. We'll start in New Hampshire, where reporter Sarah Gibson of New Hampshire Public Radio catches up with one principal to talk about what it's been like so far. Tanya Orlando, principal of Plymouth Elementary School, says bringing students back to school was full of adrenaline, but incredibly positive. I think that the buildup to it was huge. But then once there were kids in our building, it felt very normal. Normal Normal-ish. Most kids are back all five days, but they're required to wear masks and maintain social distance. Teachers are still figuring out new routines, like... How long it takes to get a group of 15 kids to wash their hands a couple times a day. But, you know, that takes time, but it's also really important. Orlando says amidst the joy of returning to school, there's a lot of anxiety. Her approach... Name it and claim it. Say out loud, I think you're feeling anxious. I'm feeling anxious about this. And don't try to deny that the anxiety is there because it's real and it's there for good reason. One of the best ways to ease that anxiety is go outside. A local timber company donated 400 tree stumps to the school for outdoor classrooms. The outdoor classrooms absolutely are full of joy. And there are kids standing on stumps and sitting on the grass leaning against stumps. Classrooms were doing read-alouds. There was a class outside practicing math on their whiteboards and holding them up for their teacher, um, you know, demonstrating their thinking out loud. Orlando says a lot of families are asking how long this new routine will last. And she just has to tell them, we don't know. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Sarah Gibson. Now to colleges in the region. Northeastern University in Boston got a lot of flack recently after the school dismissed a group of students for the fall semester who were breaking COVID safety rules. But that wasn't the thing that ticked people off so much. It had more to do with the fact that the school said it would be keeping their tuition, $36,500, and not issuing refunds, the Boston Globe reported. 
About two miles away at Boston University, administrators also have safety protocols in place, including frequent COVID tests for students. As WBUR's Angus Chen reports, those tests have added anxiety to an already unusual back-to-school season. One of the first things Clarice did when she got back to Boston University this semester was head to the Life Sciences Building for a coronavirus test. Do I have to do it both directions? Clarice is a sophomore at BU. We're not using last names to protect the students' privacy. A campus health worker watches as she twirls a swab in each nostril five times, then slides it back into a collection vial and drops it off as she leaves the building. Thank you. You too. Outside the campus testing center, Clarice wears a mask with hot air balloons. She says she was a little worried about the test since she heard COVID-19 swabs can be painful, but it turned out okay. The swab was so easy. It's just like, it's really short and it's like very, the end is like, it's very fluffy. Which is good because Clarice and just about everyone else on campus will have to repeat this routine twice a week for the rest of the school year. Clarice says it's nerve-wracking. Like, I'm really nervous about getting my first test back and stuff like that. Um, It's very high stress. Within a day or two, the first results come back. It's good news. Clarice and all her roommates test negative. A weight lifts off their shoulders. I did feel like a, a big wave of relief. I did feel pretty safe at that time. That's Nabil, one of Clarice's roommates. She's also a second year at BU. She's been taking the university's warnings about coronavirus pretty seriously. She wears a mask even inside their apartment, and she doesn't go out much. Then, on the day of her second coronavirus test, the phone rings. I got, like, a really nervous, like, while I was answering it. Someone from Student Health Services tells her she tested positive. The rest is kind of a blur, but Nabil remembers the caller explaining what will happen next. She has to go to the university's isolation dorm. I was just very shocked um, and confused, especially since I thought I was being very safe throughout my three days at BU. So after the call ended, I went and called my mom and like burst into tears. And then I ended that call and then I called my roommate. I can't really remember entirely the conversation. I sort of just broke down crying. Her roommate Clarice remembers how upset Nabil was and then how freaked out she got too. We didn't say anything. She was just like, I tested positive. The only store she was, she'd been in was she went to Whole Foods once. So, like, we were really, really surprised. And, like, really, really scared, obviously. Like, it's really scary to know that you might have COVID. This is also what scares a lot of people who live near college campuses. They worry that bringing so many students back will increase the spread of COVID-19. Clarice and their other roommate were negative, but they all start packing. Because of their close contact, both of Nabil's roommates have to quarantine for two weeks in a separate dorm. Nabil says an ambulance came to take her to isolation. Which was very flashy, but um, within an hour, I was basically out of my room. We sort of knew the drill that if I was going into isolation, they would have to go to quarantine. When they get there, the rooms are bare except for a couple of desks, beds, and chairs. There aren't any posters or photos tacked to the walls or fairy lights strung around the bed frames. They're basic dorm rooms, and the students are alone. You do have a lot of time to think, and especially since school hasn't started, it's been pretty, like, taxing on my mental health. All you can think about is, um, you know, am I sick? Will I be sick? Who will my roommates get sick, etc.? Nabil has no symptoms, and there's not much to do. She watches TV and prepares for the start of classes. Sometimes she retraces her steps, trying to figure out how she caught the coronavirus. Was it the mail she picked up that one time without washing her hands? Or that trip to the grocery store, maybe? And if she hadn't done those things, she thinks, 
Maybe she wouldn't have put her friends in danger. It's impossible to know, but it doesn't stop her from wondering. Sometimes I get to the point where I just feel like I'm watching the clock go by, waiting for it to sort of get later in the evening so I could go to bed. Hello? Oh, thank you so much. In her own room at the quarantine dorm, Clarice takes a phone call from campus health services. I'm totally fine. I have absolutely no symptoms. I took a test this morning and I think I'm still waiting for it to be picked up. But as of right now, I feel totally fine. Someone calls to check on each of the students at least once a day, and they can sign up for sessions with a mental health counselor. They also get meals dropped off they can throw in the microwave, and they catch up with friends and family on video calls. But it's pretty lonely on your own in a silent dorm. Like, it's super jarring to be put away from, like, everyone. And, like, I get all these calls on the phone, but they're not real people. To Nabil, it seems like there's a stigma if you catch the coronavirus, and she wonders if people might judge her if they knew she tested positive. I feel like if you say, like, I went to college and I got coronavirus, people would assume I stepped foot on campus and, like, went partying. So I've definitely been worried about what people would think of me. Nabil got out of isolation recently. She never developed any symptoms, and so far, her roommates haven't either. In this case, at least, it seems the coronavirus didn't spread. It's hard to know whether every student will follow the rules like Nabil and Clarice, but Nabil says she plans to stay cautious. She doesn't want to take any chances. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Angus Chen. Since Boston University started testing for COVID in late July, over 99% of the results have come back negative. Put another way, out of 72,000 tests, there have been just over 75 positive results. We're still in the middle of a pandemic that has hit communities of color the hardest. And that has worried people like Michaela. She's the oldest of four kids. I'm from Los Angeles, California, first-generation, low-income. Both of my parents are undocumented Mexican immigrants. Because her parents are undocumented, we're using a pseudonym. Michaela is a student at Brown University in Rhode Island. In March, when Brown decided to transition to remote learning, Michaela began recording audio diaries for Mosaic. It's a podcast about immigration and identity produced at The Public's Radio. Mosaic's season two premiered this month, and it launched with Michaela sharing her life with us as she straddles two very different worlds and tries to build a future despite the uncertainty of the pandemic. Here's Mosaic host Ana Gonzalez. On April 24th, the cherry blossoms are blooming on Brown's main green, and Rhode Island has just reported 437 cases of coronavirus and 13 deaths in one day. A new record. Over 200 people have died from COVID-related causes. Michaela is trying to keep herself focused on finals. Luckily, I don't have any pressing assignments, any big final papers or any final exams until the next week. So it's all this anticipation of what's going to happen. And then today, on Friday, I heard back from a position that I had applied for in the summer that is luckily still on. And I honestly, at this point, had no hopes for what my summer plans would be. But yeah, I heard back today, um, got an interview scheduled for Monday, so I have to practice within the next few days and just make sure that I'm ready for that interview. So we'll see how that goes, but that's it for this week. Hi, so this is um, May 1st, about a week, I think exactly a week since I last recorded. The semester's coming into a close super fast. It just seems like everything that 
I had been waiting for at the end of the semester came together this week. Still no word on the internship. Michaela is spending all of her days in Zoom classrooms, studying for exams and writing term papers. And she has this looming worry about her housing and how she's going to pay for it. I just would really like to know where I'm going to be in two weeks because on the 16th is the day of my last exam and that's when I need to make a choice of whether I go home or not. Michaela is still in a dorm, but after the semester ends, she has to move out. If she gets that internship she talked about, she'll be able to pay for an off-campus apartment for the summer. But if she doesn't, she'll probably go back home to L.A. and break the lease that she signed back in January before the pandemic. Right now, she has no income, but she really does not want to go back home and have to rely on her parents. But otherwise, again, I hope to hear back from the interview. Um, I have two final papers and exams due this week. Got an extension for one. Yeah, oh my gosh, I forgot to mention Mother's Day. Mother's Day is next Sunday. I ordered from a small business for my mother. I'm excited for her to get that package when it comes. So, yeah, thank you. So this is the audio recording for the week of May 11th. And I would say that this week has been both very rewarding and one of the most, I think, difficult weeks I've had. I mean, I did have a lot of final papers this week too. Two, one take-home final exam and one final paper, which was about 18 pages long. Michaela works all night on her finals and wakes up early the next day to finish them. She takes a nap later in the day and wakes up to a missed phone call. It's the internship. I called back. I was very nervous. I was shaking. This internship offered more than $5,000 for the summer, so it was just at this point, it was like my only means of sustenance. Um, and so I called and she said, congratulations, you got the internship. And I just, oh, I was so happy. Um, so I immediately called my mother, like let her know what had happened. It was a very good day. So Michaela will be staying in Providence for the summer. Even though she's excited to be paid to work remotely at a big philanthropy group, the distance from her family is getting more difficult. May 10th is Mother's Day. I just really felt bad that I haven't been able to be there for the longest time and they probably weren't going to be able to go out. And But yeah, so I bought that for her, I sent it to her, um, and <laughs> they messed up my order. I just felt so bad. I was like, my mother deserves more. I emailed the company back and I told them I have told you that I'm a student who hasn't been able to see her family in such a long time and I wanted something for my mother you know and you give her this and she deserves so much more oh my gosh I don't know why I'm getting emotional but but yeah um I explained to her I tried to just make her seem let her know that she's still loved you know On May 15th, Michaela finishes her final remote exam. She's now officially a senior at Brown University. So now the dilemma is, tomorrow is May 16th. I have a flight to go back home May 17th. Going back home was just something that I, I was very skeptical about because if I did go home before my internship started, there isn't enough time for me to quarantine. And it's crazy to think that in my family, like they don't, they don't believe in quarantine. They don't really believe in the pandemic per se. On the day Michaela is recording this, 
Rhode Island has over 12,000 cases and close to 500 deaths. In Los Angeles County, where Michaela's family is, there have been over 36,000 cases of coronavirus and more than 1,700 deaths. Michaela's family thinks she's taking it too seriously. Like if I didn't go back home, they would take it very personally and think that I just didn't care enough about them to go visit them. I always like struggle with feeling guilty about doing something that makes me happy, especially during this pandemic, because it is a danger. It is a public health hazard. But also, I really want to see my family. So it feels like a selfish choice, but I ended up booking the flight. She FaceTimes her youngest brother, who's three, to tell him that she's coming home. I told him, and I'm going back home. I'm getting on a plane. I'm going to see you soon. And his response to me was, am I going to be able to see you outside our door? And I said, yes, I'm going to knock on the door and you're going to open and I'm going to be there. He said, am I going to be able to hug you? And I was like, yes. And this was breaking my heart. And he said, am I going to be able to hit you? And I was like, why would he say that? And he said, and then, and then I'll say sorry, I promise. And I was like, oh, yes. And so when he said that, like, I, I, I did cry because it meant that I had been far away enough that he, like, it hurt him. And he knew that I was far away, but he also knew that he had a deep attachment to me and that I that he really loved me and he loved the time that we spent together. Michaela leaves her dorm early on May 17th to catch a 6 a.m. flight. She's wearing a mask and gloves and she tries not to touch her face that much or her clothes. The airport is empty. It's almost a little dystopian, with a message playing on repeat, warning travelers about social distancing measures. She manages to make it through security in time to board. Her dad and little brother pick her up at LAX. So today's my first day back home. It is May 17th, the night of May 17th. Um, Coming home is always weird because it's super emotional. I think everyone in my family, because we're just we're such a tight-knit family, and really in the U.S., all we have is our nuclear family. Um, my uncles, my aunts, my abuelitos, my grandparents, every other family member that's part of my mom's or dad's side is back in Mexico. So it was just weird because we were all emotional. We were all just, I guess, happy, and it was very warm to see each other, but none of us really knows how to express it. Like, love is not a big thing in our family. I think my mom has only hugged me, like, four times. Um... Yeah, my parents don't really show love to each other. Me and my sister don't know how to do it. And when we do, we just cry. <laughs> so it was it was weird because it was super emotional. We just, we couldn't express it in a way. And it always feels a little weird. But yeah, so that was how I came home today. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Michaela navigates her family visit and then heads back to Rhode Island with many unknowns still in play, including what will happen with classes at Brown University in the fall. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. 
Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. We're going to continue with the story of Michaela. This story is part of a podcast called Mosaic about immigration and identity. It's produced at the Publix Radio. When we left off, Michaela has flown from Rhode Island to Los Angeles to visit her family. So it has now been a week since I've been home. It is now May 24th, if I remember. (laughs) The biggest takeaway that I've had since I've been home is that the pandemic here is kind of a facade. Like it's, I think it's the same amount of people outside in Los Angeles, if not even more. There is no lockdown. Everyone is just outside with a mask. I think it's actually more people outside than I've ever seen before. My dad was telling me and my Theo that they don't really believe in the pandemic because none of the people that they know around them has been sick. And I just, I don't think that's a good way to think about it. The coronavirus case count in L.A. County on May 24th is nearing 45,000. And over 2,000 people have died. The city still has stay-at-home orders in place. So yeah, so basically what we've done so far this week, stay home, I babysit. My parents luckily were able to go back to work. Um, my dad went back to work. He works in Los Callejones in Los Angeles, which is basically the fashion district. And that's where major companies like Fashion Nova, Forever 21, and others come to buy their items in bulk. And what they do is they take this merchandise from China or other developing countries, and they take out the tax from Los Callejones, the fashion district, and then they sell it at more than double the price to make the profit in those major retailers. So my dad's been working there um, since he came to the States, I think, and they don't really... Um, crackdown on immigration there but because it's very exploitative they need workers who are just willing to work um it's a very it's a very hard business to be in Michaela's mom has work too she's cutting hair at a salon but she's scared of being exposed to the virus and potentially bringing it home to her family before the pandemic Michaela's parents had talked at length about returning to Mexico with Michaela's two younger brothers to be with the rest of the family and find work without fear that's on hold now. And that's some relief for Michaela, who still has to foot the bill a lot of the time. Like on this one day when she's home, visiting. Michaela's dad drives to work and parks in an open lot. It's the cheapest option. While he's working, somebody goes on a rampage in the lot, and he comes out to see that his windshield is smashed. His insurance won't cover it. So I guess it's just devastating to see that my dad came back after having like not worked for months, go back to his first week at work, and have that paycheck and more out of his savings account have to go into the windshield. And so I have about like $3,000 in savings that I have just for when I graduate. And yeah, I, I decided at this point that like as much as I would like to have savings and have something to start with after I graduate, like my parents, I think that they need it more. And I was like, I will not be taking that money. Take it, use it for the car. Like, don't worry about it. I guess his fear is that he thinks that I'm going to hold it against him or that I'm going to see him as a father that's not as competent because he wasn't able to to pay for anything in my college career because I have been like on a full ride. And But I told him and I think I was finally able to convince him of the fact that I can help and that he sometimes needs to accept the fact too that he can, he can take my help or he needs help. And so, so yeah, that was, that was what happened just one day. just money issues that force Michaela into this awkward position with her parents. Sometimes her parents think of her as more responsible, more mature than other kids her age, 
because she goes to an elite university. They look to her for answers about what's going wrong in their lives, making her another parent in a way that makes her uncomfortable. I think I'm the only one out of all the people that my parents know in the U.S., like the only kid that they had in this generation that actually made it to college and didn't drop out, didn't like get pregnant, didn't, you know, just go off the rails, I guess. As, as, even though we all love each other, there's like some resentment there. And so there's just always a lot of like tension in my family. And I always in places, the mediator and oh, I hate it. But, but yeah, tomorrow's my last day. So we'll see how it goes. I'm so sad. I don't want to think about leaving home. It's been so comforting. It's just been... It's been so warm. I don't know how else to put it to be surrounded by my family members and to just, you know, be home and, and yeah. The goodbyes with her family are tough. COVID-19 is ravaging the country. On May 28th, the day Michaela is recording this, the United States surpassed 100,000 deaths from the virus. The future is unplannable. So yeah, leaving was hard. Said goodbye to my dad at night because he works two jobs. One of them is distributing newspapers for the LA Times. He wakes up at like 1.40. He has to show up there at 2. So I said goodbye to him at night. But my mother, I don't think I've ever seen her cry when I leave in front of me. I think she cries afterward. But she cried this time. So me and my mom and my brother had like this dramatic, oh, goodbye. And then they followed me down. I guess my mom, my mom has never followed me down, never helped to like take my suitcase. And she followed me to the elevator, followed me down, waited for the lift to come take me to the airport. And then didn't let the lift driver or me put my suitcase in the car. Like, I guess she was super attached this time. Michaela pauses the recording, I think to cry. She makes her way back to Brown's campus alone. I know some of Brown's dorms are constructed to look like a prison, but it literally felt like a prison when I came back home. Uh, Back to my dorm, I mean. I think it was just weird because it was like a feeling of emptiness. Like the emptiness that I thought I had always felt was because I thought I had like no purpose and I was like, who knew? Like, I don't know where I'm going. This is the first summer that I actually have employment that pays me and that isn't unpaid or is one in which I lose money. And so, like, today, I guess, like, I just sat and realized, like, I, like, I guess the emptiness was this because I have a job. I have more direction in what it is that I want to do academically. And I just, yeah, it's just like this weird feeling of emptiness now. Michaela moves into her new off-campus apartment and starts her internship. She's settling into a new routine, but the world around her is anything but settled. If you remember that first week of June, the world began reacting to the murder of George Floyd and countless other Black lives. She's overwhelmed by the intensity of the debates she sees on social media. But Michaela feels strongly that she needs to do something take some sort of action. And yesterday after work, I was able to go to the um, protest that was happening at Kennedy Plaza. Do not speak. Do not speak. 
like the days of this week in which you've just been walking around Providence had been like very ominous. We actually did have a curfew instated like a couple of days ago. A lot of stores just started boarding up their shop, the shops after um, some people had gone into Providence Place Mall downtown and just started looting. One of my friends to send a picture of some kind of tank looking vehicles that were outside of the dormitories. The state capitol um, had military presence <laughs> right at the state house in the balcony. Like there was a very scary man all the way on the right side of the balcony that looked like a like a ninja he was dressed in all black attire from head to toe but like you couldn't see since you couldn't see anything he was and there was um, a drone that just kept flying around there was a call a helicopter that the helicopter that eventually came out I want to point out right here, the fact that Michaela even went to these protests is remarkable because it's totally against how she was raised. She's explained to me in other conversations that she was raised to be extremely fearful of the police and to avoid any interactions with law enforcement of any kind at all costs. And that's really common among undocumented people and their families. Contact with police for even a perceived infraction could lead to ICE detention and even deportation. So when the police start moving towards protesters in Providence, Michaela and her friends leave. It was just a very scary time. Um, I ended up staying at my friend's house because I had passed curfew and I didn't want to walk home even though it was only a block away. This fear, this culture of staying out of the public eye, not asking for help until it's too late, this carries over into other aspects of life. It's one of the reasons why the coronavirus has hit Latino communities so hard. Seeking medical treatment requires testing, paperwork, bureaucracy. Some testing sites even have the National Guard at them. If you've lived your whole life hiding from authorities, why would a pandemic change that? Michaela's experienced this fear too in other ways. Growing up, it was hard for her to get the help that she needed to get into the colleges she wanted to attend. She had to speak up and look outside of her family. Now, when she's figuring out what to do after college, Michaela faces that same predicament. And I had been considering applying to a Fulbright in Mexico as an English teaching assistant. A Fulbright scholarship is an incredibly prestigious opportunity, and it will give Michaela a chance to live in and connect with her parents' country, a place she's only been to one time. Plus, Michaela's been teaching her whole life. When she was in kindergarten, she describes sitting at the kitchen table with her mom as they both work on the same English homework, parsing through new words for hours. So she runs the idea of the Fulbright by her dad. And it just turned into a backlash in which he said that if I was... Well, A, first, the common argument, why would you go back to a country that we sacrificed so much to get you out of, blah, 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 blah. It's so underdeveloped. He said, basically, if you at the moment don't have the connections with all those rich people that you claim go to your school, or that it was basically my fault. It was your fault that you didn't make those connections, and the, the fact that you're applying to this program is you scrambling to find something to do. And that just kind of, <laughs> that really pissed me off, because he thinks that me going to this school is going to secure me lifetime economic stability. Getting a bachelor's degree does not work like that, even at a place like Brown. But Michaela's parents don't know this. She blames this, in part, on differences in culture. 
You know, in America, it's very individualistic, and you pursue your own passions, your own career. You do what is what it is that you want. You leave your family in a way to venture out and be your own person. But I don't know if this is more generally like Latinx culture, Mexican culture, maybe just my family's culture. But for them, it's communal. You one might leave the hive to pursue something, but once there's success or money there, you come back and you bring it back to the family. There is no, there is no you. There is no individual. With them, they think that the four years of me going to college across the country was enough. And after that, I'm going back home. I'm moving in with them. I'm getting a good job. I'm going to become a millionaire. We're all going to move. We're all going to move somewhere together. I'm going to buy them a house and we're all going to move together. We're going to, stick, we're going to stick together. It's not that Michaela doesn't want to stick with her family, but she's on a different path from them. It's a path that takes time to plan and figure out. And talks like this make it clear that she has to figure out her next steps without the help of her family. She decides to take a break from all of it. The upcoming Saturday is a classic Rhode Island summer day. Hot, sunny, gorgeous. So Michaela and her roommates take a day trip to Newport to see the mansions. She's on the ferry from Providence when she takes a selfie and sends it to her parents. I was like heading to Newport on a ferry. And it wasn't that they responded negatively. They were like, oh, like you look so cute, like have fun. It was in my dad. Um, sent me a picture of him and my brother selling clothes outside with like a little, a small clothes rack in the fashion industry where he works, which is like a little area next to Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles. But I know that he already has two jobs and he said that he had been there since 4 a.m. I don't know, I felt like selfish for having sent them a picture of me just going out and spending money, you know, just having fun when, I don't know why I'm getting so emotional, when he's, when he already works a job from one in the morning to like three and 30 in the morning and then works every other weekday, having to then get up from four in the morning to 12 every weekend and take my little brother with him. I felt very selfish just having taken that trip. Um, I don't know, it's always, it's difficult. That's the end of June. Michaela spends the rest of the summer figuring her life out. She applies to the Fulbright anyway. She's doing typical college things like learning how to ask her roommates to take out the trash more often. And like every other college student, she's wondering what the heck is going to happen in the fall with the pandemic still raging on. But the added twist is that Michaela won't be able to afford her apartment if Brown is totally remote and won't reimburse her room and board. So she's worried she's going to have to finish her senior year back home in Los Angeles. So I'm recording this now, my last one ever on August 16th. As August arrives, things are looking up for Michaela. Her internship ended and offered her a part-time job. And Brown finally announced that even with an uncertain fall semester, Michaela will still be getting her full refund for housing. So now all that's left to do is focus on senior year. I guess the last choice I have this semester is with the choice of whether I take three classes, which is one less than the regular course load, or four, because I don't know how I'm going to accommodate this working part-time 10 to 20 hours a week. 
it's a lot and for those reasons is why i decided to also stay here rather than go home because even though it would be nice to see my family i know that whenever i go back home i don't do anything and i think it's smart to maybe just capitalize even though it felt a little selfish on the time that i have now to maybe just sit with myself and think about what it is that i want to do in the future so that's that's where i'm at just taking these these days that i don't have anything to do just to think about what i want to prepare for my future what that might look like and just remaining safe that was balancing act the season two premiere of the podcast mosaic a production of the public's radio in rhode island Ana gonzalez is the host and producer you can find mosaic wherever you get your podcasts or online at thepublicsradio.org Coming up, actor Luis Guzman talks about why he made Vermont his home. Plus, a business owner in Hartford, Connecticut, looks to revitalize a district. The district's been in disrepair since unrest after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Okay, we're back. If you've watched movies over the past few decades, chances are you'd recognize character actor Luis Guzman. Carlito, man, that's Valley out here, man. These new kids nowadays, man, they got no respect for human life. That's Guzman playing an ex-con's sidekick in the 1993 movie Carlito's Way. Guzman has acted in more than 100 films and dozens of TV shows. Born in Puerto Rico, he grew up in New York and lived there till 1995 when he moved his family to Vermont. Independent producer John Kalish reports on Guzman's connection to the Green Mountain State and what it's been like for the movie star to raise his family there. You might not expect Vermont's iconic dairy producer to ask a streetwise actor to promote its cheddar cheese. But that's exactly what Cabot Creamery did with Luis Guzman. Cabot? Do I need to say more? Guzman lives just up the road from Cabot Creamery. His home sits on 130 acres, and that's where I met him this summer. The 63-year-old actor is sitting outside in shorts and suspenders, sipping ice water near a pile of firewood. An all-terrain vehicle is parked out front. Guzman says his fame doesn't get in the way of the usual errands. People don't believe I go to the dump. What are you doing here? Dumping my garbage. (laughs) He does not go into hiding when he's here. He's available to community organizations is supportive of the community that he lives in, and people like that. That's Jay Craven, the Vermont director who tapped Guzman to play a whiskey-smuggling monk in one of his low-budget feature films. In Vermont, Guzman has mentored students at the Vermont College of Fine Arts and judged teen films. Guzman's community service started when he was a teenager on Manhattan's Lower East Side. Outspoken as a high school student, Guzman was active against gentrification and was part of the New Yorican poetry scene. I was a youth organizer, housing organizer. I ran like the after-school program with teenagers. Some of the best work I ever done, really. 
Guzman was part of a Lower East Side group called Charis that created a community garden and rehabbed abandoned housing. It was through Charis that Guzman first came to Vermont. Its members were brought up to Goddard College's Institute for Social Ecology, then housed on a farm in Plainfield, Vermont. Dan Chodikoff, the Institute's co-founder, remembers Guzman as an energetic and magnetic 18-year-old back in the mid-1970s. I remember coming up here in the fall when the foliage was in full explosion, and it was really something to see it through Louis' eyes. This kid from the Lower East Side who had never experienced fall foliage in all its grandeur, and I think he was very taken with that. Guzman says his time at the Institute for Social Ecology, which promoted alternative energy and agriculture techniques, was eye-opening. It cemented what would become his deep connection to the Green Mountain State. The air, the vibe, you know, growing your own food and solar energy. I mean, these guys were doing all this type of stuff, you know. I was going to the quarry and swimming and everybody butt naked and stuff. Oh, hell yeah. You don't see that stuff in the city, so you do kind of discover a new sense of freedom when you come up here, you know, with people, too. Guzman says he decided to move to Vermont in 1995 because it would be a good place to raise his five children, four of whom were adopted. He suspects his celebrity status is responsible for his relatively easy time in Vermont, but the actor says other members of his Latino family have faced difficulties. We all know Vermont's a very white state, and there are some places here that really don't know how to embrace, how to accept, how to understand people of color. If anybody, I think it was my kids that have had to deal with the most stuff like that here in Vermont, you know? It wasn't like all the time, but it was enough times. The youngest of Guzman's five kids are twins. They're grown now, but when they were children, Guzman says one of the twins was taken out of a school after a series of incidents, one of which involved a classmate drawing a picture of Guzman's son being shot. We get a call from the principal because, you know, they wanted to address this. We were going to be sent to sensitivity training. And said, yo... We're not the ones that need the sensitivity training. It's these kids and their families, you know? And to a certain degree, some of these teachers, you know... Cause like- Guzman says some of his kids have been harassed by police for minor vehicle infractions. In June, Vermont's governor created a racial equity task force. One of its priorities is to evaluate structures of support for racially diverse populations. Director Jay Craven says increasing the diversity of Vermont's population is crucial. The state's future, I think, depends on diversity and younger people coming to the state. I think Louis could probably play a role in helping to advance that. Luis Guzman says he has more time on his hands lately. Four of his acting projects were canceled because of the pandemic. So he's been hunkered down at home in Vermont, doing some hiking and starting a podcast. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm John Kalish.
go now to Hartford, Connecticut, Barber Street, where there's a stretch of blocks that has yet to recover from a series of fires and vandalism spurred by the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968. But in the wake of the death of George Floyd, a Hartford business owner has come forward with a vision to revitalize the area. Connecticut Public Radio's Ryan Lindsay takes us there. Howard Cahill wants to bring economic, social, and cultural vibrancy back to Barber Street. Before the businesses burned in the late 1960s, it was home to grocery stores, bakeries, a clothing store, and other shops for black working-class families, some who owned their own businesses. I met Hill on a hot summer day for a walking tour of the street. The day Martin Luther King died, this place was burned out, and uh, it never recovered. For decades, Barber Street has been a shadow of what it used to be. Unity Plaza sits across the street from a charred grocery store. In it, a small branch of the Hartford Library, a daycare, dollar store, laundromat, ATM, post office, fast food, and a grocery store that's opened and closed several times since the 1960s. Hill himself is a business owner on Barber Street. He purchased the third location for his funeral home in 2012. The vision here is to turn this whole area right along Barber Street, which we're walking, uh, into a business, a black business district. Um, And around it would be black home ownership as well. We want to make sure that we have everything that any community needs uh, in order for it to sustain itself and thrive. Since 2012, he's been having conversations with people in the neighborhood about how they'd like to see things change. He calls the vision for revitalization the Renaissance District. A fund by the same name is accepting donations through the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. Hill said he's begun pitching the idea to banks, the city, corporations, and foundations, but hasn't locked in enough funds to make the Renaissance District a reality yet. Hill said he hopes it'll one day include a bank, grocery store, and a wellness center. I say wellness and not health care per se. Wellness uh, includes holistic and not just your physical health. Um, and within that wellness center, there's a um, mental health component, which we need to really, really address as a people because we've been changed and damaged as a result of our collective experience of being black in America. Studies continue to show that racism has a direct effect on people's physical and mental health. A Journal of Mental Health Counseling study found that 81% of African Americans who reported racial discrimination experienced post-traumatic stress disorder. Chronic stress can also lead to diseases and disorders. While walking down Barber Street, we ran into Marcus A. Brown, standing on the corner of Westland Street outside of his business, Norris Barbershop. How you been, man? Holding on, man. Holding on. All right, all right. You? I'm hanging on, man. Hang on. Brown said living in poverty and within communities plagued by violence and drugs for decades can create a damaging type of amnesia. We just forget how powerful we were as black people and and the power we have, you know. I'm a second generation owner of the barbershop, my father, 1960s. My mother's hairdresser was here, so I'm connected to this corner. Brown started cutting hair in high school and then took over Norris Barbershop in the 1990s. His family owns the building that sits on the corner of Barber and Westland. So I got good, pretty good tenants that communicate with. I'm here every day, so it's kind of easier for me to watch what's going on. So my corner here, I try to take care of it the best I can. So we come in the morning, we're picking up trash, 
see somebody doing something they ain't supposed to do, we're speaking on it. There's no shortage of trash up and down Barber Street. Hill says littering is a mindset. You have people who just don't care. You have the influence of drugs and alcohol. You have the, the family that's completely disjointed. You have dysfunction all, all sitting all around you. And this is the manifestation of it. The desire for better, he says, is there. The people really know what they want. They want to feel secure. They want to be able to shop. Hi there. How are you? Good. And um, they want to be able to live, you know. And they don't necessarily want to have to leave. (laughs) You know, this is their home, right? Hill says the coronavirus pandemic brought the momentum he was gaining to a standstill. But now he's in the process of figuring out how to make the Renaissance District a reality. It's something he says requires all hands on deck. The community, local and federal dollars, corporations, everyone has work to do. That story was produced by Connecticut Public Radio's Ryan Lindsay. Next week, we'll begin featuring a series of specials on racism in New England. In preparation, we'd like to hear from you. What questions do you have about the history of racism in our region? And how have you experienced this history? Leave a comment at 860-275-7595. Again, that's 860-275-7595. Or you can email us at next at ctpublic.org. One more time, that's next at ctpublic.org. And thank you. And that's our show this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The music you hear on Next is by musicians in New England. If you want to know who you heard today, visit our show page at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, CAI, WBUR, WSHU, GBH, and the Public's Radio.